0: Aloha. I am so happy to have my good friend, Alda, here with me today. Uh, She's a a wonderful woman. She's written three books. She's a poet, and uh, she's uh, just an all-around special person. So we have lots of things to talk about today, and I hope
1: you'll enjoy.
0: Hi, Alda. Can you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Sure. Hi. Thanks for having me, Emily. I'm really happy to be here. Let's see where to start. Basically, I got my fine arts degree from Syracuse University, so I I started my career as an artisan, as a craftsman, and jewelry making goldsmith, and I've done that for professionally probably 25 years, and then I decided to change careers, actually. I was able to go back and get my master's degree in education and counseling and human services. And I did that basically, my husband and I had adopted a three-year-old daughter from Mexico. And um, by that time, she was 12, 13, giving us some problems. So I went back to school thinking, well, I can do this. You know, I can learn about what's happening with her, what's going on, you know? And so I did that. I got my master's degree from the University of Idaho and pretty soon decided to change careers entirely. And my husband said, well, we can go anywhere. Where do you want to go? Because we were in our own business, you know. So I said, well, I don't know. I know uh, we had been to Hawaii before. And um, he said he loves to serve. Plus, he had studied Father Damien in high school. He went to a Catholic high school and he learned about Molokai and all that. And so we chose Molokai (laughs) and we went there in 1991. I worked in a school as an elementary school counselor. And uh, Jim also uh, got a master's degree in family mediation during that time. And our daughter already was 18, so she didn't come to Hawaii by then. And we kind of felt like we're going to school every day and we don't have kids. And the kids would come, the neighborhood kids would come over to our house after school Anyway, because we had a basketball rim on the in, up above the garage and things like that, and we we do things with the kids, and we finally said, you know, we need to have kids. <laughs> so we went into foster care, basically, and um, became an emergency shelter for teenagers on Molokai. And um, later on, uh, when our kids, we we adopted two boys through that process of foster care and learning about that. And by the time they were in high school, my oldest wanted to come to Maui for high school, which was a good idea. So we decided to apply for a job here on Maui and ended up co-sharing a job for Maui County through the state, recruiting, licensing, and training foster parents. And we did that. We loved it. It was absolutely great. But what we found is the kids and the families really had little or no support. And that really grieved us because so many were having issues like we had had and they didn't have any place to turn. They really didn't know how to deal with it. And a lot of this is connected with grief. So that's how we're going to segue into the whole topic because we find that these kids are left hanging. They really don't have that kind of support to deal with the psychological effects of loss Abandonment—you know—they feel abandoned. They feel betrayed. They feel the loss. They feel the grief of losing their family ties. And uh, some have open adoptions. Some can see their families, but since a lot of them are dysfunctional anyway, it doesn't usually work out. So there are a lot of a lot of problems associated with uh, foster care and adoption. So anyway, we moved to Maui and did that. And in 2005, uh, my husband and I started a nonprofit called Keiki Kukua. In the next seven years, that means, oh, that means help the children. Keiki is children. Kukua means help or aid. So it was the goal, the mission was really to help foster families cope with these kids that were rebelling and they didn't have the services they need. And unfortunately, that's still the case. Um, Not much has changed because these, we'll talk about what happens to these kids and how they manifest their grief in in all the wrong ways. And there's really not a lot of support on that. So anyway, we would provide uh, like Christmas parties at the Grand Wailea, we would do different activities for the kids. And the families, so that they could bond, they could get to know each other and uh, be able to work through the problems. Uh, We partnered with DHS or Child Protective Services and other organizations. And it it was really good. We had a thrift store and we um, hired foster kids. Most of them had aged out of the system, which, if you don't know about that, basically means when you're 18, unless you're going to college, you um, leave, and often you go back to your biological family. So we did that until 2012, when we retired at that point. And uh, my husband died about two years ago now, and uh, the whole grief thing came up again. Luckily, I know you, so I read your book and really helped and decided to write my own book, which some of it has to do with grief. And then I wrote another book, which has to do with coping skills not just for our own grief when we lose a loved one but i had in mind also the children that don't really get over their grief a lot of times
0: that's that's so true i think much of the time children get kind of left out in the in the grief process when when they are dealing with some kind of grief people kind of discount it or don't think it's going to affect them and I don't know why <laughs> that doesn't yeah. make any sense, but that just, I know as, as a child, I was, when somebody would die, nobody would talked to me about it. You know, they, they'd make sure that I was out of the room when they talked about it. And it was like, what am I supposed to do with all these thoughts and questions that I have? And, and nobody wanted to talk. So that, that makes it just, it doubles up on the grief. And I was just talking to a very successful adult man the other day and one of his biggest struggles in life was that he was adopted and he just felt even though the, his adoptive parents were wonderful he had a, a wonderful life wonderful education wonderful career he still always felt that he'd been abandoned that there there had to have been something wrong with them, or why wouldn't they love me
1: did so, he ever uh, reconnect with his biological family
0: ultimately he did It was a real challenge because in in his situation, in the state that he lived in, they had rules about the records were sealed and nobody was supposed to have any access to them. But he eventually had a biological sister reach out through the adoption process so that she was able to contact him and it, it changed his world. So, yeah. It's, it's so so wonderful when you can have that kind of connections, but lots of people never do. If they're adopted or if they're in foster care, they just don't have a healthy connection that, that can serve them.
1: I have a friend in Denver who was raised in a foster Christian foster home. And not until she was 18 did she find out her heritage is actually Jewish and she had a biological system. So, you know, the system is really not working for a lot of people in in different states. It's not just one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even in New Zealand, um, you know, we connected a little with the system there. And it's sometimes even more brutal than here because they deal, again, with minority Maori population and uh, sort of, you know, analogous to our Native Americans here. But it, it's much worse in the foster care system. So there's that kind of prejudice that's unconscious that kind of seeps into it and just exasperates the whole thing.
0: Uh, and we're we're having essentially a humanitarian crisis right now with what's going on in Ukraine and all the families that are coming across. And so many people or children are going to be without somebody and with the system so strained with, with how it is, it's, it's a potential real tragedy. So it's something I think we, we all need to pay attention to.
1: Yeah. In that case, there's not only the uprooting and maybe separation from the family, but the whole culture, mm-hmm. the whole uprooting of your home, you know, is gone. I can't even imagine the impact that that will have. Hearing the bombs go off, having to flee, maybe losing you know some of your family members. It's just horrific. It
0: really is. And of course, my philosophy, and I talk about it a lot, is that to base everything on love and to to focus on that and how can we love and care for other people and be able to provide them comfort and support. And I think in the the case of of foster children, especially, I've always had a a soft spot for them. We had not with my mom and dad, we didn't have foster children, but my sister had foster children. Um, My aunt had foster children. I had two aunts adopt foster children. So I've I've known them through my whole growing up and really gained an appreciation for the kinds of things that, that they go through that nobody else has to go through. And we're expecting so much of them. And people just don't have an understanding of, of that sort of a thing. One thing that really bothered me was kids are, are moved frequently without a whole lot of warning. And they tell them to just put all their stuff in a garbage bag and take it with them. And I was trying to start a campaign to collect suitcases so that it, a foster child would have their own suitcase, their own one thing where they could keep their stuff. And the system in the county where I lived at the time wouldn't allow it because they didn't allow the foster children to have a possession like that, to take things from police to place. And I just That's thought that was crazy. crazy.
1: Here, it's, it's enlightened enough that we did that every year. We did a luggage drive and it was very successful. We had backpacks, we had suitcases, we had everything. And, you know, again, that gives the child a little bit more some, you know, feeling of of something is mine. I can, this is, this is my possessions. This is where I live, wherever I go, you know, but it's still, um, they lose, what they lose is this sense of belonging. Real, real, I think that's really the key of the problem. There's no sense of belonging. And I'll, I'll talk more about how to cope with that. But I also want to say that we don't realize how much pathology and dysfunction comes from that lack of a sense of belonging. Like you said, Ukraine is experiencing with that. They're leaving their homeland, you know. But these kids leave their homeland in the sense, you know, going back to here, in the sense of leaving their the only home they've ever known. And so it's kind of similar, but what we have here in this country is a whole bunch of disorders Mm -hmm. that come off of that. And you end up, uh, I didn't write one down here, I'll write it down now, I just thought of it. But here they are, here's what I got. Phobias, rage, hoarding, depression, anxiety, defiance, resentment, sense of betrayal, lack of trust, lying, stealing, hatred, and homelessness. Wow, what a list. Yeah, and and that's what I did on the top of my head, just thinking about the kids I've known and the family struggling. Like, you know, you said this man, even though he had a good adopted home, oftentimes that is not enough.
0: Mm hmm well, speaking of what is enough, the, the podcast is Grief and Happiness. What is it that we can do for foster children in particular to bring happiness into their lives? Something genuine that, that we can do?
1: Well, I wrote a few things down. Okay, so let's see. As I mentioned earlier, it's a coping mechanism, right? You're not going it's, to, it's kind of like a crisis management strategy. Because you're not necessarily going to alleviate the pain, but you are going to establish a sense of longing. That you can do to the extent that you try. I mean, if you don't try to do that, obviously it's not going to happen. So the first thing I would say is just talk, you know, to the child. I've got to say, too, that some kids do not seem to experience the loss at all they don't act out they don't appear to be damaged or disturbed those kids are often introverts they just kind of implode one thing I also forgot to list is cutting they cut you know about that right so Oh yeah cutting so that I didn't even put that down those kind of behaviors are usually those who don't act out but are trying to alleviate their pain in some distorted way that, you know, is really difficult. And then suicide is another one. So anyway, okay. And I'll stop there with that. yes, Because okay, yes. <laughs> it does sound pretty depressing. It, it, it's a terrible crime what we do to these kids. So anyway, the first is really talk to them. I would say, see where they're at you know, see how they're feeling. Explain that, you know, the rules in this home may be different than the one you lived in before. And let's talk about the rules. We used to have family meeting every week. And we had the thing on the refrigerator door and they would, we had an agenda. Um, the kids could write down what they wanna talk about. Like, I don't wanna do dishes or, you know, whatever it is. And so uh, we would have a family meeting where we even got to speak. Everyone had, you know, refreshments. It was a fun thing. And that really helped because the kids will then become, and this is every family. It shouldn't just be foster adopted kids. It should be done in every family where they can talk to The, the kids can talk to parents about anything. Parents can talk to the kids about what they need. And it's confidential. You have to teach the kids not to go word it out. In the neighborhood but kids are if they own it you know if they feel like they own part of this the rules and regulations of this home whatever they are and hopefully they're not too strict another thing we used to do is a trust bank so when they did something good they it's like money in the bank right and if they get so much money you know, or they did something, they made the effort, like they did their homework or whatever it was that we established it, whatever area there was trouble in, you do a trust bank. And then if they screw up, you say, okay, we have to, that's a withdrawal. You have to take a certain amount out. Okay. But if the trust bank gets full, then we rejoice, right? We have, we're happy. We get, we get, everyone gets a treat or we get to, they get to choose what they want to do. You know, so there's a lot of ways to do that. And then we had responding, listening and responding contests. <laughs> and it's all about, you know, the same thing, just being able to really listen. And, you know, to tell the other person you're not listening to me or and responding, because sometimes you'd say something to the child, and they'd ignore you, right? And you feel ignored. Like, it, you know, did you hear me? Kind of thing. So all of those are good techniques, but with foster kids and adopted kids, to some extent, there are no magic bullets. It's just whatever tools you have in your toolbox, you know, that you can apply at a certain situation. So I think just the the overall thing is talk to them, family meetings, trust bank. Make sure you do fun activities together, which sounds obvious, but often doesn't happen because you're angry. They didn't listen and stuff like that. So, oh, consistency is another one. If you're going to do something like a family meeting, you really have to do it. Because a lot of times, you know, the kids will say, I can't do it then. You know, especially if they're in high school, we even did it in high school. I'm going to go to the baseball game or something. So um, it's easy to just shove it under the rug and say, okay, we won't do it this week. And sometimes you can't. But the consistency that you provide is really important. I would say very important. And going along with that is another one, which is validate their culture, okay? If they're from, you know, a different culture than you, Find out what that is if the child doesn't know it and and celebrate that culture. Like with our daughter, you know, we would do Mexican food, you know, do parties with piñatas, try to learn a little Spanish, (laughs) Mexican, whatever, and encourage her to pursue that part of her life, you know, because she's 100 percent Mexican, so and Indian, too, I think. Some native people there, she's got some of that culture. And we always encourage that. Again, some kids aren't the least bit interested, you know, in cooking, say, Mexican food. But I would definitely present it as a thing to do for fun. You know, don't make it a chore or a duty, but just something that they can celebrate their culture. And you again use your word, just say, we're celebrating your culture. We're celebrating the fact that you are Mexican or Cinco de Mayo or any of these um, festivals or traditions that go along with that culture, whatever the culture is, you know, research that and then celebrate that day. We did that a lot.
0: I think that's so important. I know when, when I had uh, my school of arts, I wrote a grant to make it so that if the foster children wanted to come, that they didn't have to pay. And it was hard getting the word out among the foster parents. It was like the the county didn't want to, they, they thought they were like advertising. And I said, no, you're providing a service for these kids. Nobody paying for so it.
1: Obvious and they are just so difficult to deal with. Yeah.
0: The, the kids that came, I, I happen to have one class that They were all early teens, boys, like between 12 and 14, and they all happened to be boys. It just happened that way. And when they first got there, they kind of weren't sure why they were there or what theater was, or what acting, or plays, or anything like that. They didn't know anything about it, and I, I think what happened was their parents saw, oh, here's a way that I can have a free babysitter for like a couple hours a week, and 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 that was okay. If that's what got them there, that was fine, yeah. but boy, once those those boys got into it, they just, they loved it. They just found a place where they could thrive, and they met other people who had who were also foster children who also have challenges and by working together and doing something positive with the theater things they they just blossomed it was it was amazing to see that what we could do with with having them and i i just love that they even put a article about it in the newspaper with their picture. And boy, were they thrilled. <laughs> we had to get permission, of course, from everybody to allow them to, to be in that picture. We
1: weren't allowed to take any pictures of the kids.
0: Yeah, this this was a, a special thing that they, they wow, actually that. worked it out. The, the newspaper worked it out with the county that they uh-huh. could do this because yeah. they wanted to show an example of something that really works, that, that helps the kids
1: thrive. Well, I think any creative activity where they can express themselves, uh, what we did, we had here in Maui, we did a picnic, party, festival, things with kids. And we did a magic show, as you know, it's right, and Neal. And we did uh, other activities, too. And one of them, a volunteer had a white horse mm-hmm. who Love to be painted, believe it or not. And so we took our kids, they put their hand in different buckets of paint, and they put their handprint on the horse. Wow. (laughs) The horse was a piece of art. (laughs) And the horse was so gentle and so sweet and seemed to really understand what was going on. And um, the kids just loved it.
0: I love that. That's so, so beautiful. And one of the other concerns that I've had about foster children is the aging out that you mentioned. Where I lived in Ventura, they created this fabulous place that was called The Wave, uh, Working Artists in Ventura. And it was a whole complex that had lots of like apartments that were a combination of apartments and studios that artists could live in. And they had like a big roll-up garage door on the, the front of the apartment so that they could have like once a week they'd be able to put all their wares out and people could see their studio and they could sell their their wares. And it, w- it was really beautiful. And they also had some very high-end like apartments that people could buy. Like condos that were in part of the uh, complex also that had had ocean views and really lovely. But the third part was they had a special program for foster kids who were aging out. Mm -hmm. And they provided a place for them to live. They provided life skills training for them. They provided work training for them. They just, they fostered them these these kids that have aged out. And and that's that's such an incredibly important time. Because if you've been supported until you're 18 and all of a sudden they say, okay, take care of yourself.
1: Who oh, could do did. that? You know?
0: <laughs> know. So if, if there were more things like that where they because the, the people in in that big beautiful complex could all interact with each other. So the the I hate to call them kids, but the the foster children who had aged out could interact with these artists and find ways to creatively express themselves. And the people that lived in the high-end condos were supporting them and buying the stuff and getting to know the kids and becoming friends. And it, it was just a beautiful community that they created there. I'd, I'd love to see more things like that.
1: Yes, I don't know why we're still so backward in our treatment of these children. It's, it seems a shame. One of the things you mentioned Life skills, I want to add to that, social skills. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of times developmentally they're behind and their families have not modeled social skills to them. So they they really don't know how to behave. And uh, adjunct to that is also they don't know how to behave in a normal family because what's normal is not their normal. What we would consider a normal family, they have to be told and educated and shown, no, what you were living in, first of all, is not your fault. You know, you had no control over it. This is how, you may you not be that explicit, but you show by your example how normal folks live. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it's social skills. And it's being, for them to be able to accept what we call normal, in other words, no beating, no abuse, that kind of thing, no neglect. Um, You can have as much as you wanna eat. Um, No one's gonna beat you up because she came home five minutes late. Those kind of things are very hard to teach because the children, they hear what's supposed to be normal, but somehow, psychologically, they gravitate towards Disrupting. Mm-hmm. When they see what's normal, they want to undo it. And yeah, they're not familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, but they're also trying to uh, go back to what they feel most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have like 40% of former foster kids are homeless. It's a huge amount. Wow. Because they don't know, even though you've had them for a while and you've modeled all these good behaviors they still don't have a lot of them still don't have a sense of home. And so that's our big challenge is to be able to give that, but yet toe the line. So you're not a doormat because Mm -hmm. some have learned to be very manipulative and controlling of, of that, of them because they're the only thing they can control in their life, right? Everything else has happened to them and Mm -hmm. they feel out of control. So the way they compensate is by, I'm in control now. I'm not going to let you tell me what to do. Yeah. So it's, it's a real challenge.
0: I think it'd be wonderful if we could create some sort of a safety net for, say, 18 to 21-year-old former foster children, that they could get the help and guidance that they need during that time period. And, and we're not serving them now. We're not doing anything to serve them.
1: You no, know, and I wonder how DHS would react to that. If they would even want us to do that, I mean, that's a, it's a thought, you know, because it's something that they really need.
0: They really do. That that would be uh, my listeners out there. If you're looking for a nonprofit to start, <laughs> this would be one way that that uh, you could really serve the society, our society, in in a positive way. I'd like to talk to you, too, all the, about your, your poetry and, and the book that you
1: wrote, your poetry book. Okay. Actually, that's a good place to go with what yeah. I'm just going to say. Here's the book. It's a Beautiful book, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And I did the illustrations inside. Let's see. I'm not going to turn to every page, but this says, A Pure Heart. And that's chapter two, I think. So it's actually a theme, too. So I have uh, 14 different themes in the book. But it's about the heart. The, this whole conversation talk about grief, especially in foster kids. It's about, you know, after all the intellectual decisions we make, in the end, it's about they need to know they're loved. That is key. They can understand things intellectually, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But when the heart speaks, you can't argue that, right? You have to have, it's like, it's not unconditional love because you have to abide by the rules that are imposed on you and the rules that will make them safe, not uh, restrictive rules, but rules that are necessary to keep them healthy and happy and, you know, also participating in in, uh, the family dynamic, whether it be chores or vacations or whatever. And sometimes they won't even let foster kids go on vacation with the foster family, which is another really sad thing. So they get put into a temporary foster home for two weeks and then they go back. And um, that does not help the situation. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, to be loved. And the second thing I would say is to find purpose in me. And, you know, I wrote the book because I had been writing poetry for a long time anyway. And when Jim died, we were married 47 years. So it's really difficult. Still is, you know, two years later. So I wrote, I felt like it was my creative expression, my ability to turn grief into some purpose, some some usefulness, and also to express my love. Not just my love of, you know, my family and my husband, but also expressing the pain that the kids had caused us because it was not smooth sailing by any means. And again, the resources are so limited. I am glad I got my master's degree because it gave me some idea of how to help, how to work with these kids. And we did parenting classes and did all that because you really need the whole package, like you were saying, you know, and it doesn't end when they're 18. It has to be a transition from what they've already learned and hopefully integrated into their lives. And that, that takes mentorship. And a lot of foster parents work, they have other kids in the house, they don't always have the time to mentor as these kids really need it. But anyway, back to book, there are certain chapters that talk about uh, family and children. There's another one on suffering, selfishness, separation and loss, which of course is what we're talking about here. So there are poems about those things as well as my Christian perspective which is as an optimist I believe that things can be healed through prayer so there's a lot of power that comes through that spiritual aspect however you understand it I think that we need all of that and and so the book this book just, has a lot of that in it, all the facets of healing. Could I ask
0: you to read one of the poems that maybe has to do with love or happiness or joy
1: or? Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Well, I have my last, my last chapter. My last theme is called Just for Fun. And you see the jester there? Oh, cute. Yeah, and also my third book is a coloring book, and he features in my coloring book. But, okay, this is a poem I wrote to my husband when he was, when we were first dating. (laughs) Okay, here it goes. It's called, Be My Surfboard, Baby. (laughs) Yeah, he's a surfer. Be my surfboard, baby, a bright yellow mover, so smooth and so fast. We'll sail past the others. They'll wonder who we are and marvel at our form. I'll come for the ride, baby, the directions your own, as we weave through the waves. But I'll guide you sometimes if you should grow weary or lose your way. There'll be rough waters, baby, I must hold on real tight. Breakers can't pry us apart. The biggest of waves will handle with ease. This skill is taught by love. Be my surfboard, baby. I'll wear my bikini. We're so finely matched. Adventure awaits us. What fun and what daring gliding over the waves.
0: Oh, I love that. That (laughs) is so beautiful. (laughs) Thank you well this this has been a very interesting visit, and i I really appreciate your perspective on kind of lost members of our society. I think we could call these these foster children. and the the good news is there is hope out there. we We can all do something that can help along the way. I know my sister had uh, one of her foster daughters she had had quite a few, but One of them had been burned severely when her brother set her crib on fire. And she had been through one home after another because she had so many surgeries and things that happened to to her and the parents just couldn't handle them. So they sent them on to the next person and they got her when she was maybe 12. And when she got to be 18, she stayed, was able to stay that whole time. They said, you don't have to go anywhere great and and they they didn't officially adopt her but she called them mom and dad and they they always considered her their daughter and she stayed with them until she got married and their relationship they continued they I, I consider her a niece and She's though that she's like my age, <laughs> but uh, she had children and grandchildren, and and my sister had great grandchildren because of those children. And she can they she was always considered family. And what what would be wonderful in this world is for the people that have the heart to do it to see what they could do either. It doesn't have to be having them actually foster in your home, but you can do things for the foster children in your community. So just find ways that that you can make the world a happier, brighter place. I I find that when you're dealing with grief, one of the things that can bring you happiness is when you serve others and find a way to really make a difference in their lives. That'll make you happy, too. So it's a it's very good thing to do. And I appreciate you all the being here so much today because you're giving a whole different perspective than people usually think about. We tend not to think about people that we don't really relate to. And it's important that we do.
1: Right. Well, they're hidden from the, the society and um, partly for their own protection. But because of it, we, you know, there's not much out there for them that's right we we
0: can make a difference in that
1: Can we absolutely can
0: so thank you so much for being here today and we'll have links for all those books and and whatever else you'd like to have in our show notes so that you can keep track of her and uh, get your own copies of her books they're quite wonderful i have all three and I encourage you to find ways to find happiness through what you can do for somebody else. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another
1: episode.